Thursday, February 24, 2022. This is the Hermetic Hour, and I'm your host, Pope Runyon. And tonight, we will continue reading my magical adventure novel, The Tomb of Prester John. Thus far, we have followed archaeologists Doc Rowland and Sophie Iskandar working from working for the CIA think tank, Miftek, searching for the legendary tomb of Prester John and the fabulous treasure it holds. In these new episodes, they fly to Berlin to discover the coded secrets in Prester John's letter to Frederick Barbarossa. Then off to Turkey, where they team up with Nuri Renda, an agent of the Turkish MIT, and are stalked by Sophie's sinister terrorist boyfriend, Khalil Ibn Iblis. So, tune in for Cloak and Dagger Thrills. Well, I think I'd better better briefly summarize uh, the preceding uh, episodes uh, so that those of you who have uh, have uh, missed uh, the previous two broadcasts uh, we'll we'll be able to catch up on on the action anyway. Uh, the tomb of Prester John is a kind of an Indiana Jones James Bond combination, uh, and and also perhaps uh, you know it, it's got a magical color aspect to it too. So it, it's uh, it, it's an adventure novel, which is what I specialized in before I got into magic and continued uh, to. You know, continued to do while I while I was in the, in the magic and 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 uh, and anyway, this uh, this tomb of Prester John is a very is very typical Indiana Jones kind of adventure, and I created the character Mary of Doctor Marion Rowland and presented him in our film Beyond Lemuria, uh, which those of you who've seen you've seen Doc Rowland. Exploring the uh, the ruins of Non Madol out in the Pacific, and uh, and I've you know it, as far as, as the inspiration for Doc Rowland, I've had some had some adventures myself. You know, I've been with the National Geographic down in Mexico, and 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 in fact, I even I even climbed the, uh, the Pyramid of the Sun on the Day of the Dead, uh, and witnessed a pagan ritual on the top of the, the Pyramid of the Sun. On the Day of the Dead in 1988. Uh, so Doc Rowland, in in my in my guys, Doc Rowland has had some uh, has had some adventures. Anyway, in uh, in this particular one, the Tomb of Prester John, uh, Doc Rowland is is in his usual professorial position in the uh, University of California at Fullerton, which of course there is no University of California at Fullerton, but but for the sake of fiction, we 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 uh, it's California State University, of course, of course, but uh, we we created that for fiction, uh, and uh, so uh, Doc is there when uh, is, is in his professorial position there uh, when this begins. Now, the origin of the tomb of Prester John is the legend of Prester John itself, and the legend of Prester John is almost came to uh uh in, into fact and into history uh, at, at the end of the 11th century when the pope and the emperor of Byzantium 
and Frederick Barbarossa, the Emperor of Germany, all received letters from Prester John, the priest king of a Central Asian kingdom, that the that that the Europeans desperately wanted Prester John to help them, to help the, to help save the, the Christian Crusades. They were losing the they were losing the Crusades, the Crusader Wars against Saladin and the Holy Land at the time, and they thought that this Christian uh, this Christian kingdom in Central Asia, uh, ruled by the priest king Prester John, could send them an army and save them. And instead of that, they got these letters from uh, from someone alleging to be Prester John, and and he didn't offer them military assistance, but he he spent most of the letters talking about his treasures, and. Uh, these these letters, uh, and therefore they they were not really taken that seriously. But but uh, all of them disappeared except the one to the emperor of Byzantium. His is the only letter that survived. Now, in our story, a letter the letter to Emperor Barbarossa in Germany has been discovered, and in that letter there is a mention that among the treasures of Prester John was the golden fleece uh, from ancient Colchis. And and uh, that's referred to in the letter to Barbarossa. But, of course, it was not referred to in the one copy that did survive, and that was the one of the Emperor Byzantium. So before this, uh, before this letter was discovered, the, gr- the growing and going idea of who Prester John was, was supposed to be a Central Asian uh, uh, kingdom of the Black uh, the black Qatars. Uh, yeah, Yelu Dashi was uh, this, this, this uh, uh, kind of Tatar Khan was thought to have been Prester John. A lot of those people were Nestorian Christians, and so they that he was the best candidate for Prester John. But once this letter to Barbarossa was discovered, uh, then then the the whole emphasis shifted to an Armenian Georgian uh, priest king or or, or uh, priest priest uh, priest duke, if you will, uh, by the name of John Arbelian. So this complicated things. Now, meanwhile, uh, Sophie Sophia. Uh, Iskandar is a Lebanese, a Lebanese lady anthropologist uh, who is a colleague of Doc Rollins, and she has quite a, an interesting history. She's uh, she's been a, uh, a, a Gnostic pagan priestess, and she's uh, she has a really really interesting interesting background. But uh, she and Doc Roland both. Uh, want to want to go after the treasure of Prester John, and and uh, they work for a CIA think tank called MythSec. Now MythSec is a kind of a it's kind of a sinister organization. It it's headed by by a very sinister character uh, who calls himself Victor Palescu, uh, and. Uh, uh, we'll get into we'll get into his background tonight, and uh, 
and this is a non-government organization, uh, like so many of these academic think tanks are. But it is it operates with the CIA, and and the assistant director is a CIA agent. Anyway, who happens to be uh, a former Special Forces officer buddy of Doc Rowlands? Uh, now that's that's the background of this thing, and and and. Uh, uh, the story opens up with Doc Rowland uh, in his in, in in his in his office in in, in uh, the University of Fullerton, and he receives this package from Sophie in Lebanon, and she sends it uh, uh, she sends it to him, and it's it's the lamp of truth. It's an artifact. It's it's a kind of a magic lantern, and uh, it's this old brass. And it uh, and it, it has a lot, a lot of lot of little mirrors inside it, and uh, and it is according to uh, a medieval uh, commentator who sold it to the Byzantines. It's supposed to decode the letter to Prester, uh, that Prester John sent to the uh, to the Pope and and and, and Barbarossa and and the Emperor Byzantium. So. So uh, Roland gets the uh, he he gets the uh, the lamp of truth and and he answers Sophie's email and and says yes he's he's he, he's uh, he wants to go with her to uh, you know to to Turkey and 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 and, and check it out and uh, but first he needs to meet with uh, he needs to meet with uh, Victor. And, uh, Nodescu, the director, the founder and director of MythTech, that who is, as I say, is a sort of a sinister character. And uh, anyway, uh, so uh, so Doc takes the uh, takes the lamp of truth, and he goes down to Wilshire Boulevard, and he and he gets into the inner sanctum of MythTech, and he presents the uh, uh, the lamp of truth, and and uh, they discuss the the project, and uh, Nodescu, uh, Palescu, uh, the uh, Nodescu was my villain in in, in Beyond Lemuria, so so I get the I get the cues, uh, the Romanian cues mixed up sometimes. So, so actually, it's it's Palescu. Uh, uh, Palescu, uh, uh, he he let uh, he let the uh, Sophie buy this thing uh, with a with a with a MythTech credit card for a million dollars in Istanbul from a collector in Istanbul, and and they're and they're they're kind of arguing about whether it's worth it, and uh, and you know as soon as as soon as uh, um, as soon as Doc puts it on the table, as soon as he puts the lamp of truth on the table, uh, immediately. Uh, the CIA agent Smedley shows him a picture uh, of the same thing on in Wikipedia on his on his laptop, and he says and he says it's already on Wikipedia, Doc. And Doc says, "What else? Well, what isn't? You know? I mean, come on." And and uh, and they they're wondering if it was actually worth a million. And and Doc, of course, turns around to to to. to uh, uh, Palescu, and he says, come on, Victor, that's pocket change for you. You don't have to worry about that. But anyway, 
they uh, they argue about this primarily. Uh, Victor Victor Pulescu doesn't want the Chinese to know that 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 they've shifted gears on this thing and they're no longer interested in the Central Asian Khan. They're now interested in this Armenian Duke, uh, this 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 priest uh, this priest king and our uh, this Armenian Georgian by the name of John Arbelian. And and uh, they but but Pulescu uh, uh, still wants to wants to have the Chinese thinking that they're going for the Central Asian character because the Chinese, you know, the Chinese obviously don't want they 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 don't want any Christian king in in, in Central Asia, and and so um, you know, a doctor gets just upset with victory. He said, "What are you? What what kind of game are you playing here? You're going to send us off with the Chinese with Chinese intelligence chasing us and and uh, and no 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 we're we're going to find somebody else to do that uh, we'll 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 get another team to do that and and, and you could sneak into Turkey as, as a diversion you know and <laughs> anyway uh, you know you get the impression that Victor uh, Palestu is a very very sinister manipulative individual and he created MythTech not to support Western civilization. But to discredit it, uh, they're they're more interested in discrediting uh, Western Western legends than they are uh, than they are actually uh, supporting them. Yeah, but uh, the general opinion is that that these letters were not from Prester John, but were from his successor, and they really were, according to this. Uh, uh, Baron Munchausen type character Don Mandeville, who is there really was a John Mandeville, by the way. Much of this is uh, once you research, if you research the background of all of this, you're going to find out that most most of what of what I'm talking about is actually true. <laughs> and and uh, uh, so uh, they uh, they they want to get uh, uh, the uh, Sophie and and uh, and, uh, uh, and Doc, they want to get them in into uh, uh, into the into the tomb and recover the treasure. And and uh, and Nodescu wants to give the treasure to the UN. He wants to he, he wants to give the treasure to the UN. And and of course uh, uh, Doc Doc. Doesn't doesn't want to do that at all. And of course, neither does Smedley, the CIA agent. And the two of them, by the way, Smedley, uh, Smedley is is kind of a patriot. He 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 is he's a real American and a former special forces officer. And uh, and so he um, he and he is is kind of uh, uh, the only reason why Doc really stays with Mythpec. So that that brings uh, this just about up. But then, then no, I because I have to, I have to, I, I have to, uh, I have to reveal, get, get into this. Uh, Sophie, they reveal that Sophie has a background that's very suspicious, and they give uh, Doc her dossier. Now he takes his dossier home to read it, and and the dossier has got pictures, photographs, and everything else, and all kinds of evidence, and and all. So he reads the dossier. And it turns out that Sophie uh, was raised in Lebanon, 
uh, in, in a convent, and her father was a was a Catholic priest and 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 uh, very anti Gnostic. He was a professor also, and uh, and she she was a ballet dancer. Her mother wanted wanted to be a ballet dancer, and 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 so and she she fell in love with a with a, an Iranian an Iranian ballet dancer, Persian boy who who uh when the Islamic revolution happened in, in Persia, in Iran, they they closed the Iranian ballet company. And so this kid uh this kid Khalil, his his family came uh came over to Lebanon and and uh and so he he got into ballet school uh, uh with uh, with Sophie and they became dancing partners and they eventually became teenage lovers and and they eventually eloped uh they didn't actually get married but they but they ran off to the United States and and uh entered Berkeley and and and, and then when they got to Berkeley in California uh they promptly joined the OTO <laughs> and and then uh Sophie of course had a, the, her father was anti-Gnostic, and so she, she, you know, rebellion, rebellion, she fitted right in with that. So they had quite a run with the OTO, uh, doing the Gnostic Mass and everything, and, and Sophie uh, got in a lot of trouble, uh, you know, uh, tattooed tattooed herself all over with with astrological symbols and danced in danced a strip club, and, and you know, and generally got in a lot of trouble and did a lot of drugs and a lot of stuff. And uh, and then she went, then she really kind of rebelled against all of that and and, and went back to her Christian upbringing and 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 decided that uh, uh, that uh, uh, she was going to uh, go with Valentinian Gnostic Christianity and and went from transferred from Berkeley to uh, to Stanford. And got a master's degree in anthropology, and uh, and then went on back to uh, back to uh, you know, the American University in Beirut, and became an, a teacher there. And and she met Doctor Doc Roland when she was in Stanford. Anyway, but Khalil, her boyfriend, he went the other way, and he and he decided that. Resurrect the cult of even Saba, the the uh, the assassins, and and uh, so he became uh, her enemy, and and they they broke up, and the last thing that uh, that Sophie is aware of is that Khalil is is himself working for Victor Pavescu. Now, that's about where we're at. That takes us to the end of Chapter 2, and then we start Chapter 3, The Puppet Masters, and we'll be off on tonight's episode. So let's get the, let's get the tail end, just the tail end of of uh, Chapter 2, so we, so we can have some idea where we're going in Chapter 3. In his Hashashin rituals, Sandra was only 18, a spiritual refugee from the Southern Bible Belt, who was just as enamored of me, that's Sophie, as she was of Khalil. We had become something of a menage a trois. So even after I moved out, she kept me informed of Khalil's activities. 
the Hashoshin were a subcult of his Ptolemaic Emirate. Most of his initiates were Shiite Palestinians, so he was including a strong measure of Nazi Islamic doctrine in his teachings. He and Sandra were creating a secret army of suicide assassins, and they were being funded and enabled by an American billionaire and his NGO. You would be astounded if you knew the truth, she told, She said to Doc. Oh, I'm not easily astounded, Sophie. Remember, the American Civil Liberties Union and the Anti-Defamation League both were supported by the American Nazi Party. So who's our biggest traitor this time? She moved to him and whispered in his ear, Victor Pulescu, Mythtech. Doc growled, why does that not surprise me? I wonder if Khalil is still on Victor's payroll. Sophie nodded, he is. And he called me on my cell phone before we left for Germany, she murmured. So they're already, they're already in Berlin when this goes on. Now, chapter three, the puppet master. Explain this, but uh, this this book is is written in multiple viewpoints, as most most novels like this are. There, there are multiple viewpoints. You switch from the hero to the villain, and 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 the female lead, and then the villain, and then and then the hero, and then, and then back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth. So this is chapter three, the puppet master, preliminary poetry. It's all a checkerboard of nights and days where destiny with men for pieces plays. Hither and thither moves and mates and slays, and one by one back in the closet lies. Omar Khayyam. Victor Pulescu leaned back in his massaging armchair, enjoying his BHK-52 Cuban cigar while he scanned the world map covering one wall of his office. His eyes drifted to the island of Cuba, while he thought, well, they've been socialists for 60 years, and they still make the world's best cigars. It was part of his morning meditation, and he would enter it in the inspirational thought in his journal. Victor Pulescu was a mystic, a Sabbatean Kabbalist, and a black magician. He was also a professor of philosophy, a billionaire financier, a modern alchemist, and the founder and director of MythTech. His think tank NGO, that was a platform for his personal war against Western Christian culture, even though Victor himself was a Roman Catholic. His gaze panned the map as his eyes half-closed in reverie. All across the Atlantic to the Canary Islands, which triggered Atlantis and theosophy. But history evolves from the simple to the complex. So Atlantis doesn't fit with Marxist social Darwinism and must be discredited. Plato was useful, however. His Republic was a better handbook for tyranny than Machiavelli's The Prince. Write that down, he told himself. Reverie deepened as he as his gaze drifted to his birthplace, Bucharest, Romania. His earliest memories carried him no further back than age six, when he left home to live and study with his uncle, a Sabbatean rabbi 
who had converted to Roman Catholicism. And young Victor, who had been born Isaac Zerogan, followed in his uncle's footsteps and became Victor Polescu. Victor Polescu was now 75, in good health, and appearing no older than 50, although somewhat pale, under a normally swarthy complexion. Since his 40s, he had been employed, he had employed an alchemical secret he had learned from his uncle, a secret his uncle had learned in the Vatican Library, one of a number of dark teachings that had prompted, prompted his Orthodox Jewish parents to withdraw him fellowship and bring him home. This would indirectly lead to a worse horror for them than anything they might have learned about his uncle's teachings. And his uncle Simon taught him that if the magician has no conscience, he can accomplish anything. Young Isaac continued to slip away and visit his uncle, his uncle Simon Zerogan. Having become a converto to the Roman church, continued his Sabbatean infiltrations by joining the Nazi party. 14-year-old Isaac was awed by his uncle's black uniform, his Luger pistol, and his ornamental dagger. These are only symbols of power, my boy, like the sword and the wand of a magician. And a magician should always ally himself with power, for then it will be his to wield. But there are, there are Goyan Gentiles Christians, Isaac blurted, had blurted out. They are creatures of myth. Steal their myth, and you steal their power. But what if their myth steals us? We remain God's chosen people, no matter where we worship or what uniform we wear, his uncle replied. But my parents hate the Nazis. I know that, and the Gestapo knows that, too. They have your family on the list. The whole family should have converted to Catholicism when I did. It's too late for them now. But my father is Orthodox, not Sabbatean, Isaac protested. Sabbateans will survive, others may not. Are you a Sabbatean, Isaac? So you have taught me, Uncle Isaac replied. Then act like one. You might get a nice reward for reporting your parents. Then you could come and live with me, and we could see about making you a Roman Catholic, and then a Nazi. Isaac remembered that he had objected to the idea but then Simon had reminded him that if a magician has no conscience, he can accomplish anything. And so the boy returned home, started an argument with his parents to justify his familial treason, and reported them to the Gestapo. However, it did not work out the way he had hoped. The Nazis arrested him along with his whole family. His uncle managed to get him an interview at the railway station before the detainees were shipped off in 40 and 8 boxcars to Treblinka in Poland. The interviewing officer was Major Adolf Eichmann. Eichmann listened to Isaac's story with a sour expression on his face. Your mother, your father and mother, he asked Isaac. Isaac nodded. And I was supposed to receive a reward, he murmured. Oh, you will, the Major replied. We'll see that you get a good job in the camp, he said, and tapped the brim of his cap in a salute, Heil Hitler. And that was how young Isaac Zerogan became a Zonder Commando. The Zonder Commandos were young Jews who were forced or volunteered to assist the guards in exterminating 
became spouses of detainees. In Treblinka, this was mostly done in gas chambers. Once the chambers had been cleared of gas, the zoner commandos hauled out the nude bodies of the dead, and then a special squad, usually of volunteers, scavenged the bodies for any jewelry they could find or gold teeth that they could extract. Isaac was on special scavenging duty on the one day he would never forget. His supervisor was Corporal Mihi Kuza, a Romanian SS trooper with a philosophical bent and a fiendish sense of humor. As Isaac prowled through the corpses with his pliers and his bag of gold teeth, Corporal Kusa recounted the story of the Hydra's teeth from the Greek myth of the Golden Fleece. When the king of cultures found that Jason had killed the Hydra and stolen the Golden Fleece, he ordered his soldiers to pull, up the Hydra's, pull out the Hydra's teeth and put them in a bag for him. The Hydra had over a dozen heads and lots of teeth, and of course we have lots of Jews. As this banter was going on, Isaac was prying open jaws and jerking out gold teeth, while Kuza hovered over him, making sure he was not squirreling away any of the loot. Anyway, the king and his men chased Jason, Jason and his Greeks down to the beach, where they planted the hydras in the sand. It was then that Isaac Zerogan found the middle-aged couple lying in each other's arms, huddled together in death, his father and mother. Shut up, he shouted. Ah, you knew them, Kusa said in mock sadness. Some spark of humanity ignited in Isaac. He whirled and tried to grab the corporal, but two guards rushed in and quickly restrained him. Corporal Kusa threw his P-38 automatic pistol and pointed it at Isaac and barked. You get down there and get those people's teeth and put them in that bag or I'll shoot you dead. Isaac knew that he had been given a second chance to make his peace with God. All he had to do was attack Kuza again as soon as the guards released him and he could join his parents in death with honor and atonement. But these were Christian virtues and he would have none of them. He nodded. They released him, and he got down on his knees and fumbled in his pocket for the pliers. As the memory faded and he returned from his meditation, Victor Polescu realized he needed to relight his cigar. When his Cuban stogie rekindled, he'd opened his journal and wrote the date on the top of the next blank page. Under this he wrote, Cubans have been socialists for 60 years and they still make the world's best cigars. So much for the inevitable superiority of capitalist endeavor. Then he wrote, Plato's Republic is a better handbook for tyranny than Machiavelli's The Prince. Modern tyranny, that is. Because as Machiavelli wrote in his discourses, all republics carry within them the seeds of their inevitable destruction. And until the the fools realize the necessity of term limits for their representatives, their democracies will always be doomed to fatal corruption. And then he contemplated the learnings from his autobiographical remembrings. They are all creatures of myth, Uncle Simon had said. Steal their myth and you steal their power. He wrote that down and then asked himself, but what was their myth? The Golden Fleece. The dragon's teeth, the coach's treasure, the treasure of Prester John, yes. They were all connected. The medieval land of Prester John was the ancient realm of King Aetes and Medea, coaches, 
on the eastern shore of the Black Sea, the foothills of the Caucasus Mountains, the birthplace of Western history, and the beginning of international gold power. Now he realized why the bell had rung deep in his mind when they had discovered that the legendary Prester John had actually been the 12th century Georgian-Armenian priest and general John Arbelian, who had driven the Seljuk Turks out of the kingdom of Georgia and taken the city of Ani for his personal domain. Ani, the city of a thousand churches, was the obvious location of John Arbelian's tomb or somewhere close by. The most significant discrepancy in the original story of the Prester John letters was that the letters had been sent clerics and leaders years after the deaths of the two primary candidates for his office, Yehudashi of Karakatai and John Arbelian of Georgia. This discrepancy lent credence to the later rumor that the letters were coded directions to his tomb of fabulous riches. Then research put Yellow Dashi out of the running, and this left John Orbelian as Prester John and Ani, presently in Turkey, as the prime location. And the fact that the Golden Fleece was referred to in the letters tended to confirm the supposition. One of the historical connections to the Yellow Dashi version of Prester John was the possible interaction of the assassin cult of Hassan ibn Saba. Hassan's fortress near the southern shore of the Caspian Sea was close to the site of the climactic battle which Yehudashi fought with the Persians in 1141. When Roland and, and, and um, Iskandar began their research on the Prester John project in 1997, Yehudashi had been the best candidate for the Venerable Holy Holy Warlord. And Victor Palescu, who sponsored Doc and Sophie, also sponsored Sophie's former paramour, Khalil Ibn Iblis, and his new order of the Hashashin, though another, through another of his activist groups. Victor always liked to hedge his bet, and being a cultural warrior, he considered terrorism a good investment, if not always a wise one. But in 2000, a Russian anthropologist with access to Georgian and Armenian records uncovered evidence that finally established the 12th century Armenian-Georgian general Ivan John Arbelian as the real Prester John. As soon as the Russian published his findings, the present Georgian government removed Arbelian from their history. Too late. The cat was out of the bag as far as Miftek was concerned. Arbelian and the city of Ani became the final focus of their project, which might be the biggest treasure hunt in modern times. And even though Ani was a long way from Almut, Victor had kept Khalil on his payroll, and he knew that the Persian was still Majnun, love crazy, over Sophia Skandar. He would follow her to the ends of the earth to rape and kill her in a twisted version of a family honor killing. Khalil was a fanatic, a dangerous animal that required very careful handling. Victor had wisely refrained from informing Khalil even Iblis of the new direction that the Prester John project had taken. It might not 
be necessary to bring him into the game at this point. But if they had to, if they did recover the treasure, Khalil could prove an entertaining climax. Victor swiveled in his chair around and looked at his face in the mirror. He was pale, too pale. It was time for renewal, rejuvenation via the alchemical secret. Uncle Simon, Uncle Simon, had converted to Roman Catholicism to discover. Once a Catholic, he was in contact with other Sabbatean convertos who secured him access to the Vatican Library, where he found a copy of Liber Sanguinarius, the Latin translation of the Hebrew Sefer Damem, the alchemical text used by Pope Innocent's alchemist in his rejuvenating transfusions. Unfortunately for Pope Innocent VIII, the transfusions only rejuvenated him long enough uh, as long as the adrenochrome buzz lasted, because none of the three altar boys they killed matched in the innocent's blood type. He died a few days after the murdered boys sucking on a wet nurse's teeth. The transfusion process had to wait until blood typing technology was perfected in the early 1900s. Now it was big business for the very privileged. His watch told him that it was... 100 hours, time for his online appointment with the farm. With the farm, He swiveled around again, switched on his computer uh, to a secret network that only the very privileged could access and brought up the farm's website. A beautiful pastoral scene with a farmhouse, a barn and a, a yard with children playing, naked children playing volleyball and shuffleboard, none older than 13 or 14, mostly white and fair-haired. He typed in his password. The camera zoomed him into the farmhouse. The hostess, a Juno-esque Amazon in white coveralls, unzipped to the crotch, greeted him with a seductive smile. Welcome, master. Follow me out to the barn and you can inspect your order before you fly out here this afternoon. The hostess and owner of the farm was Maria Semelovich, an occultist, who had become more infamous than Aleister Crowley and was the lady guru of the Hollywood crowd. She was untouchable, above and below the law. Victor knew her only through the rejuvenation business. She was indebted to him for using his considerable government influence to legalize the transfusion process. Of course, he could not legalize kidnapping and murdering children, but as long as she had a market for the body parts, either for organ transplants or preventer, she could keep the evidence to a minimum. As she and the cameras proceeded out to the barn, the camera focused on her opulent charms escaping her coveralls. Victor smiled at her. Maria, I'm not interested in women your age. I need a child in puberty. And we have one for you, Master, 13 and virgin. Then why are you trying to distract to distract me? Well, our clients are often in a state of extreme arousal after rejuvenation, and I'm available to accommodate you at no extra charge. Well, why not have your service to the bill? She ran her hands over her exposed body and, re and replied in a breathless sigh. Well, because to do this painfully because we have to do this painfully, and it arouses me almost as much as it does you. 
you are as evil as I am, Victor said. That's the nicest thing you've ever said to me, Victor, she replied. They they entered the barn, and the camera led them to an open stall. It was white and filled with fresh hay. A young teenage girl, blonde with pigtails, curled up asleep in the straw. Maria called her, Julie, wake up, dear. The master wants to see you. The girl woke up and looked up with big blue eyes. And Maria, she said, who is, who is he? She was looking into the camera. Oh, that's just Jack, our camera boy. The master's looking at you through the camera. Say hello. Hello, master. I'm Julie. Do you like me? It was a very small voice. Maria sat down beside Julie and opened her knees, spreading her thighs apart. She began opening the girl's vagina so the camera could zoom in. She's a virgin, Victor. I'm not superstitious. As long as she's typo negative, she'll do fine. I'll be flying out there this afternoon. How about the leftovers? Oh, my freezer's full. Oh, we have a cannery. Long Piglet makes great sandwiches with horseradish sauce and sourdough bread. Okay, cans. How much is this going to come? All going to come to? Oh, about ten grand. I'll give you. I'll give it to you for seven if you'll make me happy. I'll think about it, Victor said. And excited, and exited the program. He settled back in his chair and lit another cigar. I don't think I'll get involved with that woman any more than I already am, he told himself. Chapter 4 The Letter from Prester John. Yahan indeed is gone with all his rose and Yamshid's seven ring cup, where no one knows, O Mark I am. Room service brought break at 7 a.m. While Sophie was still in the shower, coffee, Danish, orange juice, and the Berliner Morgenpost, Doc was already dressed and ready for the museum, wearing the obligatory tweed jacket with leather elbow patches, button-down Ivy League collar and rep-start tie, khaki pants and chuck boots He was obviously professorial. Sophie emerged from her suite in a beige business suit and a royal purple neck scarf. She was obviously a Phoenician nobility. Their appointment with Professor Klaus Hausifer at the Ethnic Museum was at 10 in the morning, so there was time for a continental breakfast. Doc, always the gentleman, rose and held out her chair at the small table and poured her coffee before sitting back down. Guten Tag, he offered. Danke, she replied. You said... At the letter to Barbarossa that they have has a reference to the Golden Fleece. Now, you know that the letter to the Emperor of Byzantium, the only surviving copy, doesn't mention it. The copy the Pope supposedly received has disappeared. Yes, this Barbarossa letter is what put the Russians on the scent, she replied. What if it's a fake, Doc wondered. Carbon dating paper, and ink analysis all check out to the 11th century, she reminded him. Yeah, but the reproduction you and the Russians saw could have been photoshopped. Well, you can use your magnifying glass on the original this morning, Sherlock, she quipped. Elementary, my dear Watson, he quipped back. Ten minutes later, they were leaving the hotel lobby and boarding a cab on the way to to Museum Island, one of the cultural centers of Western civilization a project begun by the Prussian kings in the 1830s and completed in the 1930s. Thank God we didn't bomb it like we did Dresden, Doc muttered. Their their cab pulled up 
before the imposing portico of the Ethnological Museum. They climbed the steps and entered the reception lobby, taking the lift to the second floor where the medieval gallery was located. As they entered the hall, they were hailed by their host, Dr. Klaus Hauselfer, Ph.D., professor of medieval history from Quadraga University. Guten Tag, he greeted them as they approached the display case he was guarding. Good morning, Klaus, Sophie responded in English. This is my colleague, Dr. Marion Rowland from Stanford, calling Doc. They shook hands. Klaus was a tall, bearded, middle-aged German academic wearing gold-rimmed bifocals. Now, here it is, he said, gesturing to the ancient parchment in the glass on the display case. How is your Latin? I can read it, Doc said, as he leaned down to peer it into the case. The letter was penned in beautiful Carlaginian script, obviously written by a European in church Latin. Doc translated it, translated it in his mind as he read. Johannes Presbyter by the omnipotence of God and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of Kings, ruler of rulers, hopes for the well-being of his friend, Frederick Barbarossa, Emperor of Germany, and wishes that the grace of God be with him in the future. Well, Doc thought, this is the Barbarossa letter, no doubt about that. And the Latin was archaic enough to match other documents from the same time period that he had translated. Prince of the Golden Fleece was included, they were in business. If not, then someone had created a forged letter based on a reproduction. He would keep on translating. Ten minutes later, he found it, reading and translating. Our palace is founded on gems, and gems are its walls, held together by the best and purest gold serving for mortar. The roof is fashioned from the clearest sapphire stones, and then the Saurus Noster Continent Verum Verbellus, Orum Cochi Antiqui Fuit Semper in Custodia Nostra. Our treasure contains the true golden fleece of ancient cultures. It has always been in our keeping. Bingo, Dr. Clarence. Rising up to give Sophie a high-five salute. He turned to Klaus. We need a full-size photostat of this document. The office downstairs on your way out, Herr Roland, Klaus said. Glad to be of service. How did you anticipate we needed it? I knew you had the laugh, Klaus answered. Doc wondered what else he might know and who else might know it, but he kept silent and offered polite thanks and goodbyes. By noon... They were back at Brandenburg Airport for their flight to Istanbul. Once again, Doc's diplomatic identification got them through customs without luggage or personal search. Colonel Nuri Renda of MIT, Turkish National Intelligence Service, would meet them at the airport and shepherd them through customs on that end. Unfortunately, he would also be their driver down to Akisar the modern city surrounding the ruins of ancient Theatrium. Doc and Sophie were expected to cooperate with Colonel Renda on a cover story version of their expedition, which was a search for evidence connecting the ancient Phoenician purple cloth and dye industry with the same business and craft guild in, in, in Theatrium. Turkey was an American ally and a member of NATO. They might 
help us with biblical biblical archaeology, but not with a hunt for a treasure on their soil unless they recovered the treasure. So Doc decided to let Sophie and Renda do most of the talking. Colonel Renda was waiting for them in the access tunnel as they deplaned. A short barrel of a man with a ferocious black mustache and an MIT badge with a photo of Camille Ataturk on the breast pocket of his black suit jacket. Nazio Miraba, there's in, Dr. Renda hailed him. Colonel Renda, Doc responded with a salute. Well, should it be Major Roland, Renda returned a salute. Not this time, Effendi, Doc said, just Doc. Call me Nuri. Uh, come on, let's get you through security. Half an hour later, they were comfortably ensconced in the passenger cabin of a government limo, having lunch. Kebabs and baklava washed down with champagne. It was less than 100 miles from Istanbul to Akasar as a crow flies. But they would have to skirt around the Dardanelles, and so the drive would take the rest of the afternoon. While they lunched, Sophie answered Colonel Renda's questions about their project. The Phoenicians, my people, were famous uh, for their purple cloth, she said, as she unbuttoned her jacket and pulled out her purple and gold neck scarf, giving the colonel a tantalizing glimpse of her untethered charms before recovering her modesty. Doc gave her a stern look. Renda was not a man to play games with. She winked back as if to say, I know what I'm doing, and she continued. The Murex mollusk from which the precious dye comes lives in the coastal waters of the eastern Mediterranean. The dye was produced in Sidon and Tyre as early as 1500 B.C. and in Carthage before the Punic Wars. After the Greeks Hellenized the Levant and Asia, a Phoenician cloth dyeing industry started up in Theatrium, which is now Akazar. They even had a clothiers and dyers trade guild and a patron god and goddess. We are searching for the origins of this commercial enterprise. We'll investigate shell mounds, museum artifacts, inscriptions, and surviving records. And the Christian Bible, Renda, Renda interjected. There was a theatrian commercial outlet in Philippi across the, across the channel in Macedonia, Sophie confirmed. What else do you know, Colonel? Colonel Renda gave her a cynical look. I know there's been a vehicle following us for the past hour. We've given them several chances to pass, but they are still following. I want to know who that is. Well, so do we, Doc said. Colonel Renda took a hand mic from the console and barked a series of orders in Turkish. He then instructed the driver who pulled off the road onto the shoulder and stopped. We'll wait. It won't be long. My men were following, and we had a helicopter, Brenda explained. And while we're waiting, I want to talk about this man you're working for, this Turkish Sabbatean Isaac Zerogan, calls himself Victor Polescu. He is the founding director of MythTech, that organization you two belong to. You have a problem with Victor Polescu, Doc asked? I have a problem with Zerogan, Colonel Brenda, Brenda growled. And so does every country in Eastern Europe. He's a financial terrorist, a communist, and President Reagan would never have tolerated him. The New World Order was a Bush neocon thing, Doc muttered. That's when Victor sneaked in. Sabbateans are Satanists, classified as terrorists in my country, Colonel Renda barked. 
They steal our children. They drink their blood. Oh, come on, Nuri. That's an old wives' tale. The Romans said that about the Christians. It's tabloid stuff. They made me eat my baby. We have evidence, and it's going on in America, the colonel declared. But Victor is not a Sabbatean. He's a Roman Catholic. He converted to Catholicism back in 1939. And so he could join the Nazi party. Sabbateans infiltrate all religions, especially Islam. We're rooting them out here in Turkey. Doc remained silent on that. It reminded him of the Spanish Inquisition's turning on the Sephardic converts to Catholicism. And yet he had always had a bad feeling about Victor Palescu, and especially Miftek's agenda. Their projects never seemed to be in the national interest or in the interest of preserving Western civilization. They're trying to establish their empire in the Ukraine, the medieval Khazars, the original Zionists. It's all in their Talmud. That's your new world order. I'm not going to argue with you, Nuri. I think you have several conspiracy theories mixed up. I personally don't like Victor or his politics, but I try to keep politics out of my work and just do my job like I did when I was a soldier. Colonel Renda opened a radio channel and squawked in Turkish. They have our stalker. They are bringing him to the car, he said, as he opened the side door. Let's get out and see what we caught. The wop 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 whopping of rotor blades and a cloud of dust announced the arrival of a large military gunship. When the dust had settled, a team of Turkish Special Forces troopers hustled a black garb handcuffed prisoner toward the limo. The man was bearded with a scar on his face. He flashed Sophie a wide grin. It was Khalil even it was, hello, my darling, he called. This man knows you, Dr. Iskandar, Colonel Renda asked. Well, unfortunately, yes, Sophie replied. You had better tell me about it, Renda said. Oh, it's a long story, she replied. We've got all afternoon. They will fly him to headquarters in Ankara and hold him there for my interrogation tomorrow morning. He instructed the troopers, and they dragged Khalil back to the helicopter. Doc shook his head in dismay. This is all we need. At least he's not Chinese. Later that evening, in their rooms at the Phaeton Hotel in Akazar, a few minutes after Sophie had finished her account of her relations with Khalil, Nuri ringed his cell phone rang. That was my office calling. Khalil has been released. What? Doc snorted. He's on Interpol, Interpol's most wanted list. Oh, he must know somebody... Very big, Brenda said. Sophie gave Doc a knowing look. Oh, he does. Indeed, he does. Now, in the next episodes, we're going to go on to Theatria, and Sophie is going to reveal the true nature of Jezebel in the, in, in the book of Revelations. And this is really going to be a revelation, so be sure and don't miss the next episode the next exciting episode of the tomb of Prester John. And, and I, it probably won't be up next week, but, but it will be up very, pretty shortly. And until then, have a good evening and good magic.